2: Pretty incredible to think about, but this week is going to be the final week that Dan Snyder owns our football team. Seems so far fetched over the years, especially when you considered his age. But by the end of this week, Dan Snyder is out and Josh Harris is in. Yeah, I believe that this thing is moving forward. You know, we had the reporting last week about some of the indemnification issues that still exist between Dan and the league or Dan's sister, Michelle, in the league. But I believe Thursday in Minneapolis, the owners will vote uh, to ratify Josh Harris as the next owner of their franchise in Washington. Uh, And then you'll have a closing shortly thereafter where... You know, the doc documents, the final documents get signed and the money gets wired. As I told you last week, remember, uh, I was told by multiple sources that wiring instructions had already been sent. Now, keep in mind that Josh Harris has to, I would assume, I don't know this for a fact... But I would assume that all of his limited partners, you know, the fifty million to five hundred million or four hundred million um, investors—I forget what Mitchell Rails has and Magic Johnson. I think Magic's got two hundred fifty million in it. Um, but I would imagine that they didn't send their money when Josh Harris asked if they would commit to being a part of the group. I'm, they're, he's not going to—they're not going to let uh, Josh Harris hold on to fifty, hundred, you know, 200, $300 dollars for three, four months. Um, so he's still got to get all the money from them. I don't know. Maybe there was earnest money put down. I don't know how that works, actually, when you've got that many limited partners and that big of a group, um, but they're probably putting it all together as we speak, um, getting it all into one uh, place, and it'll be wired to Snyder in the amount of, I think it's $5.85 billion, uh, with, remember, the earnout um, on the other... You know, the amount that gets it up to $6.05 billion in a final sale if Snyder earns that piece out. And Snyder has a lot of debt. I would imagine that the senior debt on the team, now that it's being sold, that they will get paid perhaps at the closing as well. Um, We shall see. I don't know if we'll ever find out exactly how that transaction works. Uh, But yeah, by the end of this week, it's amazing. I mean, I just, I think that it is one of those things that for so long seemed implausible. I, I said this morning on radio, I, 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 I just sort of um, made this stupid analogy, I guess, that it, it kind of feels like we've been locked up for 24 years uh, for a crime that we didn't commit and all of a sudden some advances in DNA Uh, proved our innocence, and so now we're getting out. But the issue is, you know, have we been institutionalized? Uh, Like Red said to Andy Dufresne in Shawshank. And um, I riffed on that line, and I couldn't remember the line exactly that Red uh, delivers about being institutionalized, so I actually looked it up. Um, And here is the actual line when Red says, Remember Brooks commits suicide once he gets paroled and he just can't make it on the outside. And Red said, quote, these walls are kind of funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, get you, it, it gets so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life. That's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. Um, yeah, uh, in so many ways, Snyder took... Our love of this team away Um, and now the challenge for the new ownership group will be to get that back to get it back to the people that felt that way about the team in the past um, before we got locked up and for a whole new group of much younger potential fans uh, and customers Uh, but very big week in DC sports. Feels a little bit anticlimactic, just a little bit, um, because we had those moments of uh, you know celebration in the past when it was first reported that this was going to happen, and then when Snyder put out the press release and Harris put out the press release that they had you know a fully executed sales agreement. Um, but it will be official at the end of this week. Uh, big deal in DC sports honestly, um, the most significant sports-related event we've had since probably the Nats won the World Series. Uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Dan Snyder selling the team has been at the top of this city's sports wish list for a long time, and the wish is coming true one guest on the show today and i've already recorded the interview with len shapiro and i think you're really going to like it len of course covered the redskins for years was an editor at the post for years and i reached out to len because when you start looking back 24 years ago when Snyder purchased the team um, to see who was reporting on it. Len was reporting on it. Uh, He was there, and he's such a historian anyway of kind of D.C. sports and the team. Uh, Len Shapiro coming up. And I have to tell you that I think there are a couple of really interesting nuggets that Len um, gave us that have nothing to do really with the Snyder ownership Um, uh, Specifically, he gave us a nugget about George Allen and the end of the George Allen era here in Washington and how that happened. And then something I had never heard before, he tells us that Jack Kent Cooke, and you'll hear his description of it, was actually considering changing the name before he passed away. Um. So Len Shapiro coming up in the final two segments of the show today. Uh, you're going to hear, by the way, shortly, I'm going to play for you, Patrick Mahomes uh, on a podcast this weekend talking about the loss of Eric Biennemi. You know, we we got after Biennemi a little bit last week because he wasn't really very prominent at all in that Netflix uh, series, Quarterback. Um, but uh, I'm going to give you both sides, and I'm going to play some Patrick Mahomes from over the weekend on uh, the loss of Eric Bien-Aimé. Um He says something about Washington in his answer. Uh, you'll hear that coming up. The show today is presented by the Circa Million and the Circa Survivor Pools. The Circa is... Just a beautiful, beautiful resort casino sports book, the biggest and best sports book in Las Vegas. Uh, and if you're out in Vegas, I would urge you to sign up for these contests. Uh, there aren't any contests like them uh, in Vegas. The circa million is basically you know, a season long thing where you pick five games against the spread each week and at the end of the season, the person with the best overall record wins a million dollars. But there are another $5 million in guaranteed prizes. Uh, in this offer, um, they've got quarterly, season-long prizes. The guy with the worst record takes home a hundred grand. Um, the entry is a thousand bucks, a thousand dollars, with a maximum of five entries per person. But the Circa Million has become one of the true big. Uh, sports pools slash contests in the country. Again, you've got to be in Vegas at a Circa property to sign up, but you don't have to make your picks from Vegas once the season begins. They're also offering the Circa Survivor Pool $8 million in guaranteed uh, money to the winners, All right, 8 million last year, two winners split 6 million. Typical survivor pool you pick one team straight up, no point spread every week to win. If the team loses or ties, you're eliminated. You can only pick each team once the entire season. Uh, Circa Million and Circa Survivor presented by the Circa Sportsbook and Casino Resort out in Vegas. Uh, all right, there was actually a little bit of news related to the team. I wanted to share that with you. Um, this was Nikki Javala from the Washington Post uh, earlier today and Mark Maskey from the Washington Post earlier today. Former Washington commanders, commander's Ticket and Sales Executive Jason Friedman, remember him, filed a civil lawsuit in a county court this month accusing the commanders and one of their attorneys of defamation. Friedman previously accused the team and and owner Dan Snyder of financial improprieties that were detailed in an April 2022 letter from the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, then called the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Uh, to the Federal Trade Commission, the commanders denied the allegations. The team, uh, this is from Friedman's attorneys um, as it relates to the lawsuit, Quote, the team responded to Mr. Friedman's allegations of financial improprieties by repeatedly and publicly calling him a liar, accusing him of committing the federal crime of perjury and falsely implying that he was terminated as part of the team's sexual harassment scandal that was being widely reported in the press. The team's false statements about Mr. Friedman, which uh, it has repeated or caused to be repeated in various public forums, have devastated him personally and professionally. He suffers from severe anxiety and depression, will require ongoing medical treatment, and has been unable to find a comparable job due to the team's deliberate and malicious destruction of his reputation. The 15-page lawsuit filed July 7th in in the Civil Division of the Loudoun County Circuit Court names Pro Football Link, by the way, that's the commander's corporate name, um, and attorney John Brownlee as defendants. Remember Brownlee? He's the one that I um, you know, uh, it's sort of implied was more of a marketing and PR uh, mouthpiece uh, for Snyder. Um, because a lot of that stuff uh, that he was spouting just was nonsensical at the time. But he really went on the attack, remember, on Friedman in particular. Um, But he's uh, one of the defendants here. It requests a jury trial and says Friedman is seeking $7.5 million in compensatory damages and $350,000 in punitive damages plus interest, attorney's fees, expenses, costs, and any other damages that the court deems proper. The commanders and Brownlee did not immediately comment on the lawsuit. Now, Lisa Banks, one of Friedman's attorneys, said, quote, Jason Friedman testified truthfully before Congress about his experiences with the Washington commanders. In response to his testimony, the team and and its lawyer attempted to publicly destroy him by baselessly calling him a liar and questioning his moral character. I'm confident that Mr. Friedman will be vindicated both by the NFL's investigation and a court of law, closed quote. Yeah, that Brownlee was really something else. I mean, we talked a lot about him on the show during that time when the Snyder's had him out there pitching on their behalf. But the whole pitch was just so poorly thought out. Um, Remember, they wrote that nine-page letter uh, to the House Oversight and Reform Committee trying to pin everything on Bruce Allen. Um, And it was like, dude, you're attaching like emails and texts from various people. And these things are all from well before Bruce Allen got there. Uh, It's still amazing to me. I know we've talked about it, you know, forever now, two, three years. But why someone at some point in the organization didn't say, hey, maybe we should, you know, dial it back on pinning everything on Bruce he got here well after the majority of the accusations were made i mean this guy brownlee couldn't figure it out um uh now you know i guess the bigger issue would be is this kind of what Snyder's worried about and he wants to be indemnified against any kind of settlement with jason friedman um because here they are you know suing the team uh for defamation And it's a defamation case based on a time frame in which Snyder still owned the team. I personally don't see any of this, uh, you know, delaying or putting in jeopardy the sale later this week. Now, you know, remember, and Ben reminded me of this on radio this morning. Ben Standing reminded me that initially for the vote. The owners were told to keep two dates available, July 20th, and I think it was August 8th um, for the vote. But then, you know, they did settle on July 20th. Um, We'll see. Look, I mean, most of what, you know, Lisa Banks' clients, um, the, you know, very brave women that came forward, You know, I think, Neil and Rockville's pointed this out to me in the past, I think a lot of that is basically beyond the statute of limitations. Uh, And so this defamation case, though, isn't, because the defamation took place here just in the last year, year and a half. Um, So this would be kind of a way to try to get some you know, to try to get something out of the team for this mess for everybody. I don't know if they'll be successful or not. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not educated enough legally to understand whether or not Jason Friedman has a case or not. But anyway, um, so there you go. That was the news of the day. Uh, So I wanted to play something that I found uh, earlier this afternoon, um, and it was – Patrick Mahomes on a podcast, uh, Rob Matty's podcast. Rob Matty is an AP NFL writer, and he has a podcast called Faith on the Field. Uh, and you'll hear his question about Eric Bieniemy, and then you'll hear Patrick Mahomes' response.
0: How different is it going to be without EB, Eric Bieniemy, over there on the sideline with you guys?
3: Yeah, I mean it's definitely going to be different. I mean, uh, he was a voice that was in that's been in this locker room my entire career, um, and so to lose that voice, I mean, I, I'm excited for Washington because I know how how inspiring that he can be and how smart he he was for us. Um, luckily for us, I mean, I think Coach Reed does a great job of finding great coaches um, to to supplement uh, some of that that great leadership that uh, Coach Bien-Ami, uh had for us, and I, I'll trust in Coach Reed to have the right plan to to kind of do whatever we can to get ourselves in that right moment again. Um, And so uh, it's uh, definitely going to be tough losing him. I have so much respect for EB. He he was such a great coach, but a great person. Um, But I'm excited for these other guys to step up and be those coaches that they've learned from him and learned from Coach Reed to be.
2: Come to any conclusion you want on what you heard Mahomes say. Parse all of his words till your heart's content. Um, But the bottom line is he said, It's definitely going to be different. He was a voice that has been in this locker room my entire career, and so to lose that voice, I mean, I'm excited for Washington because I know how inspiring he can be and how smart he was for us, closed quote. He also talked about how Andy Reid's good at supplementing the staff. Look, many of you got after me a little bit on Twitter last week for um, being highly critical of Bienemy um from that quarterback series the Netflix series I don't think I was highly critical at all in my opinion I was just observational I was highly observational I I gave you the caveats of highly edited show um and prior to watching the final episode which was the AFC Championship and Super Bowl uh episode um That, uh, you know, there was more to come and maybe I would change my mind and Biennemi was more of a presence in that final episode. But look, I I think the bottom line is because we heard this from our good friend Steven Spector, who runs a sports talk station in Kansas City, used to work for us at 980, work with us, um, is that Matt Nagy is Mahomes' guy. And they were moving in the direction of, of making Matt Nagy officially the OC again because that's what he was before he took the job with the Bears. I have no idea what it would have meant for Biennemi, but it probably would have meant a different role, a reduced role with Nagy back. And, you know, it's very possible that, you know, and by the way, I'm not even saying that it, it may not even be likely that Eric Biennemi not only is smart And inspiring, as Mahomes said, but was significantly influential in his years in Kansas City. But stylistically, it's very possible that he wore thin on everybody, that it got a little bit old, and that he needs a new place. He needs a new set of eyes and ears, and by the way, needs to get out underneath the big shadow of Andy Reid. And for that matter, maybe Matt Nagy too. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not predicting that Eric Bieniemy is going to be a complete bust. I am doing what I did last summer with Carson Wentz for sure. I'm identifying the fact that there are red flags. That's just a fact. If you can't deal with it, I can't help you. But nobody else wanted to hire him. And it's questionable as to what his role would have been had Washington not hired him in Kansas City. But again, he was with them for a while. He was with Andy Reid. There's got to be a lot that rubs off from them um, and that staff. The problem, of course, here is that he doesn't have Patrick Mahomes, and he doesn't have Travis Kelsey, and he doesn't have Tariq Hill, etc., etc., Uh, but, um, I hope it works out for Eric Bianami. It would be a great story for him to prove so many wrong, but we'll see. And we're not going to know anything until they start to play real games, by the way. And I think I've made this point before. It's also possible. We're not going to know that much if he doesn't have a real quarterback, you know, no, uh, sorry, but Scott Turner for all of you that think he was just terrible, he had eight quarterbacks that played here during his tenure as offensive coordinator, and none of them were any good. Um, when you don't have a good quarterback, it's pretty hard to begin uh, to be a good offensive coordinator. I mean, there are only a few examples of it, Kyle Shanahan being the most recent example of it. Um, I did want to mention real quickly that The Wimbledon final was great. I didn't watch it live. I was actually playing golf. Um, But I watched the fifth set uh, when I got home yesterday. What a set. Man, Djokovic with that break point in the second game up one love and having, you know, kind of an easy swinging volley at the net. That was the opportunity. If he breaks there and he doesn't miss that shot and goes up two love, I think he goes on to win it. But Alcaraz was great. Uh, He really was. Um, Djokovic, very classy in defeat, uh, not un, not unexpected. Alcaraz is the new big thing in tennis. He won the U.S. Open. Uh, everybody believes he's going to be great on clay, um, but he you know cramped up at the French this spring in his match against Djokovic. But I will tell you this: that you know having a new face in men's tennis, even though it's not an American face. But a new face and a new talent who's already won now two majors, when we get to the U.S. Open end of next month in Flushing Meadow, uh, it is going to be a big-time showdown uh, between Alcaraz and Djokovic, and people are going to be rooting for that final, and if that's the final, that will be an anticipated tennis match. The. One of the bigger ones that I I think we've had in a while. I think the Fed Djokovic, Nadal Djokovic, Nadal Federer finals, they all sort of run together. And they did sort of run together after a while. Um Alcaraz is 20 years old. He's not the youngest that's ever won Wimbledon. That was Boris Becker. You know, Becker was 17 uh, when he won Wimbledon in in 85. And Becker was thought to be the next great thing in tennis. And he was, but there were a lot of great things in tennis during that era. He went on to win six majors. Okay, six. Um, So those that are trying to act like Alcarez were at the beginning of another Djokovic, Federer, Nadal run. Those guys have 23, 22, and 20. All right, then it's Sampras at 14. Like, maybe Alcaraz is talented enough to get to double digits, but Becker only got to six. But that was a great fifth set, and I understand it was a great match start to finish. Some of the shot-making was just incredible. I'd love to see the rematch in New York uh, in, uh, in September, in early September. All right, uh, let's get to Len Shapiro, and we'll do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. This segment of the show brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC to secure a first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. MyBookie's got everything you need for the upcoming NFL season and college football season. I mentioned a few weeks ago Washington being a a 5.5-point favorite in Week 1 over Arizona. The total is now 39.5. In the Arizona Washington season opener. That is the lowest total uh, by a couple of points in week one of the NFL. Uh, they're not expecting Washington and Arizona to light it up offensively uh, in the opener. Uh, use Kevin DC as the promo code, and you can secure an initial deposit bonus of up to $1,000. Dollars jumping on with us right now is Len Shapiro. Len was a longtime sports reporter, sports editor at the Washington Post, covering the Skins forever, covering golf forever. Uh, Len, a legend uh, and in terms of the Washington Post and covering sports in this town. And I just thought about you to reach out to you this week because you really were involved uh, in the early days of Dan Snyder covering the team. You're on several bylines uh, for the Post when Snyder... Uh, purchased the team back in the summer of 1999. So I want to get to that in a moment. But, you know, I was checking out your Wikipedia page before we started. Um, You were a copy editor in in 1969 for the Washington Post, Len. Um, That's that's quite a run you had uh, from 69 until, I think, 2010.
3: Well, who's counting? (laughs) Yeah, actually, I... (laughs) Uh, no, I actually joined the Post uh, as a part-timer while I was in graduate school uh, at the University of Missouri, which had a program in D.C., uh, and I took a job as a part-timer taking high school scores over the telephone and uh, on Friday nights and Saturdays, and when I got my degree, uh, they hired me full-time, so, uh, and I started covering high schools originally.
2: So, what year so was I started
3: out as a high school writer?
2: So, I'm just curious. You were there for the Watergate break-in and Woodward and Bernstein, and everything that followed during those years from set, you know, from '72, June of '72, through the, you know, the Nixon uh, resignation in August of '74. Even though you were writing sports, you were you were with the paper. What do you remember from those days?
3: Well, I remember it it was a team effort, and I'm not trying to tell you that anybody in the sports department had much to do with unseating Richard Nixon, but everybody in the building knew that, you know, if you went to a cocktail party, if you went to a tailgate, if you did something, overheard something, don't be shy, tell somebody about it, because the boys, as in Woodward and Bernstein, uh, it might lead to something. So uh, it, it was a very exciting time at the paper, Uh, for me, I mean, I was paying attention, of course, like everybody else, but I was also covering Navy football. Uh, I, I had a little bit of the Redskins at one point. I started covering the Redskins full-time as the beat reporter in 1973, the year after they, um, they went to their first Super Bowl and lost to the Miami Dolphins, uh, who I also covered, by the way, the year they won 17, went 17 and 0 and beat the Redskins. That was my first Super Bowl as well.
2: Well, so you were young at the time, but were were there any pieces of information at cocktail parties that you came across that you shared or not?
3: Oh n- nothing that ever made it into print. I can tell you that, Kevin. No, no, not really. um uh, they did a pretty damn good job without us <laughs> yeah
2: um so seventy three was the first year that you were on the beat I-, I didn't intend on on doing this with you, but now now i'm I'm more interested. We'll get to Snyder and his exit here uh shortly. Okay. so you've got George Allen and those Redskin teams, and they're coming off that Super Bowl loss to Miami. Uh, you know, Jurgensen's still on the team. Um, uh, Sonny still calls the game in 74 when they beat the dolphins at RFK stadium, his super bowl. But, but give me some of the things that you remember about those teams and covering George Allen in particular.
3: Well, I always tell people George Allen made me uh, a much better reporter because he never gave us anything. He never, he never announced trades. Really. He never announced who he was cutting, who he was bringing in—you uh, sort of had to really work the phones to find out what was going on. Uh, we used to call uh, our nickname among the media for George was—we uh, called him Nixon with a whistle. Uh, he was paranoid. Uh, you know, he had his own—he had his own security guy, uh, Ed Boynton, who was a former Los, uh, former Long Beach, California policeman who had hooked up with George. After uh, Ed had retired from the the police force in California with the Rams, came east with him. Uh, he, his nickname was Double O Seven, of course. Uh, James Bond was big then too, uh, and it was it was a very interesting experience. George closed practices a lot, so you you really had a hustle uh, to get to get the information. Uh, and he, he made me a better reporter, and he made all of us better reporters.
2: Did he, he drove l- us crazy? Did he like any of you?
3: Uh, I think he tolerated us. I don't think he liked anybody.
2: So there, uh, he was—he
3: was very suspicious. He, he was very suspicious. Uh, he didn't have any cozy kind of. Re- the closest I would say to any kind of relationship was with the Maurice Siegel, uh, Mo Siegel, uh, longtime, yeah, Washington Star report uh, columnist who actually started out the Post. They—they uh, they were friendly. We—we we, we were friendly enough. But uh, I never got invited to his house for dinner, I can tell you that.
2: (laughs) Well, he he certainly didn't want to be home for Christmas, celebrating Christmas. We remember uh, those NFL uh, films highlights. Um, You know, I've, I've talked a lot in recent years about how you know, I'm a child of the 70s, and this city was so much different back then. And, look, you, you were covering the number one story in town, but there was no real number two. I mean, there was no baseball team. The Bullets in right, 73 right. had just were just moving to Landover from Baltimore. Um, there was no hockey team until 74. What was it like in, right. in the early to mid-70s well, covering sports in this town?
3: Well, it, it was, you know, covering the Redskins obviously was great because, you know, everybody paid attention, uh, including our editor, uh, Ben Bradley, the legendary, uh, my my hero, really, and, yeah. and uh, uh, sat in the owner's box with Edward Bennett Williams, who was the team president and a great attorney, uh, Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer, among others, uh, who then went on and bought the Baltimore Orioles when Jack Cook showed up. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, the whole town was energized by George Allen. Obviously, uh, he came in right away, he turned the team around. Uh, there was night- in fact, one of my first assignments, uh, Kevin, was the-, the Vince Lombardi death watch in 1969. I was sent to Georgetown Hospital every day after our first edition came out, just to make sure that, that Mr. Lombardi didn't die before our final deadline at two o'clock in the morning, so he would have. I could call in and give them some information. Uh, But Lombardi came in 69. Uh, He was replaced uh, the only year he coached the team, replaced by a guy named Bill Austin, uh, who wound up being George Allen's offensive line coach for quite a while. Uh, And then George Allen came in in 1971, turned the team around, turned the town around. You know, he had all these old gray beards uh, that he – you know, they, 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 he didn't he didn't believe in, in uh, draft choices, uh, so he, he, he started the over the hill gang. Uh, people like Dyron Talbert and Ron McDowell and Mike Bass and uh, Kenny Houston. All these guys came in uh, in the first couple of years, uh, and uh, they became a, a contender. Then um, came very close to uh, had a, had a really good shot at winning that Super Bowl. Uh, uh, but but lost uh, in 14 to seven in a game that's still remembered for the craziest play in Super Bowl history when Garo Yepremian the Dolphins kicker tried to throw a pass it was intercepted by my friend Mike Bass yeah and returned for a touchdown.
2: Yeah. By the way, how about Mike Bass getting into the Ring of of Honor uh, last year? Which um, last year or the year before? I'm I'm, I'm losing track. But yeah, old, it was
3: last year. I think it was last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. But
2: number number forty one opposite number thirty seven. Pat Fisher, pretty pretty decent. That's right. uh, Starting corners,
3: so you know, I, right, and, and yeah, and you also had Brig Owens, twenty-three, of
2: course, and then you know, it's eventually thinking, yeah. Kenny Houston came around. Jake Scott, who was the MVP of Super Bowl Seven, played for Washington. um I, I um, I've always felt, and in a lot of uh, older people have pushed back on me and said, no, 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 the the, the Redskins, the love affair with the Redskins really started with Sonny Jurgensen in the sixties, and. I don't, uh, you know, I don't remember that when the life or I, I remember George Allen's that's the first year I remember is 71 his first year here. And I think George Allen and I know Lombardi was here two years previous to that and, and had the town excited. But I think George Allen, with what he did in winning and then establishing what was the best rivalry in the league over a long period of time, I think that was the beginning of the true passion, you know, the mass passion for this team. Do you agree or disagree?
3: No, I, I, I agree. Uh, now, again, I was not around in the 60s, uh, but, but they, were, they, they were bad. They I mean, were they, bad. They to win. They, they had, uh, they, you know, it was an offensive circus. Sonny and Charlie Taylor and, and Bobby Mitchell and uh, uh, you know, they had a great offense, but they couldn't stop anybody. Sam Huff was on that team, and he couldn't stop anybody. Uh, but yeah, uh, George George really galvanized the town. And again, you mentioned it earlier. We lost the baseball team, uh, and, and there, there wasn't a heck of a lot to root for. Uh, maybe you know the University of Maryland had had had, got a, had, had a great revival. <clears throat> under lefty grizzell, uh but the senators had left town the post started to cover the orioles in the early 70s but the town wasn't quite ready to adopt uh earl weaver and and cal ripkin and eddie murray uh and, and draw them to their hearts uh as they would have if the team had been the washington senators or the nationals so yeah the redskins had it pretty much themselves uh, we gave it unbelievable coverage. Uh, I was writing two and three stories a day. Uh, we would write six or seven stories uh, after a game, sidebars, front page, lots of photos. Uh, it was on. Uh, there was no s- sports talk radio back then right. for the most part. But uh, all the local TV stations uh, had name, big name, uh, uh, or big name in this town anyway, Uh, You had people like uh, uh, Glenn Brenner, George Michael, Warner Wolf, uh, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, sports at 6-11 and usually got four or five minutes. Now you're lucky to get 35 seconds. Right. So it was a big deal, and the Redskins, and and George knew how to get, George knew how to make, you know, as much as he distrusted the press, uh, he also knew how to use the press and use the media and knew what a headline was and knew how to make headlines. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he would taunt the Cowboys. Uh, he would ask some of his players. He would tell them what to say to us to get them going. You know, Roger, uh, Dyrin uh, Talbert uh, was sort of his, his uh, uh, George's <laughs> yeah. voice. Uh, he would tell Dyron to say something like, well, you know, they have to use the shotgun cause Talbert, uh, because uh, Starbeck has trouble reading defenses and that would get in the paper and that would rile up the cowboys so you know he had a, he had a lot of fun with it we had a lot of fun with it uh but he was totally paranoid
2: you know um i don't know if you've seen the football life special on Roger Staubach but my favorite part of it is when they do they did a a segment on the rivalry be, between the cowboys and the redskins and Staubach for the first time and the only time during that um, during that show, at least the edited version became just super intense and competitive looking. And he talked about how he got knocked out of that Thanksgiving Day game, and Clint Longley came in, and how they lost yep. the seventy-two title game at RFK. And then he said, "But you know what? Every other game that mattered the rest of the decade, you check the record, we won that game." <laughs> and 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 so that that was a genuine. For, for professional sports, I mean, that was legitimate hatred between two organizations.
3: Oh, absolutely. And it started a long before, before George, George Allen got there. There, there was uh, there were a lot of shenanigans right. going on early on uh, back in the 60s as well. But, yeah, they, they, they didn't like each other. The players, uh, you know, and for example, Dyron Talbert had a brother who played for the Cowboys, so he hated the Cowboys just because – the Cowboys, I think, had cut his brother at one point. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it transferred that way. John Wilbur, uh, an offensive guard, had played for the Cowboys, uh, and they traded him to the Redskins, and he hated the Cowboys. So it, it was palpable in the locker room, uh, and they made it very, very clear to us uh, that this was not just uh, an act, but that they really did, didn't like them. Uh, they were upset with Tex Schramm, who was the general manager of the Cowboys, uh, he used to spend uh, the pregame warm-ups uh, standing very close to where Mark Mosley was kicking uh, because he thought he had a lead uh, uh, a piece of lead in, in his right. toe, yeah. the kicker. Uh, <laughs> th- so there were all kinds of stuff going on.
2: You know, here's uh, so many of these stories I think a-, a lot of my listeners, you know, have heard, not that they don't l- like hearing him again because they love hearing them from people like you, but... Uh, here's one that I don't remember, and you'll have the answer to. I think when George Allen got fired at the end of the '77 season, um, they'd gone to the playoffs in '76 and they lost a wild card as a wild card team at, at Minnesota uh, in a pretty one-sided um, beatdown. But in '77, yeah. they went nine and five, and they actually really had a season that was almost overachieving for for what they were. Um, they didn't make the playoffs, but they were still a 9-5 and football team and a pretty good football team. If you recall, at the end of that season, they needed, um, they needed the Giants to beat Chicago to get into the postseason. Yeah. And in the snow and yeah, ice yeah. At, at the Meadowlands, Chicago won in overtime, and that knocked Washington yeah. out. Well, ironically, Jack Pardee would become the next coach. He was coaching Chicago at the time. But why did... Edward Bennett-Williams ultimately fire Allen after what was a pretty you know, pretty good season overall, even though it wasn't a playoff season?
3: Okay, I'm going to tell you, uh, well, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I'm not sure he actually fired him. Yeah, he did fire him, but there's a big asterisk there. During that season, toward the end of the season, there was a Saturday practice, or there was a Friday practice, and George came out and said, you know, fellas, I have never seen my son, Bruce Allen, play a college football game. I am going to do something I've never done before. I'm not going to come to practice tomorrow, Saturday. I'm going to go down to the University of Richmond and watch my son play football. You know, it's a Saturday is a walkthrough, but the assistants could handle it. Okay, fine. All right, flash forward, and we didn't think anything of it. He comes back, and, you know, the whole thing Uh, blows up eventually, and and Allen uh, goes to the Rams. Well, George Allen on that Saturday did not go to watch his son play football. George Allen, uh, and I got this from a very good source who's no longer with us, so I can tell you, he was a chauffeur, and told me about a year later when I was doing a big magazine story about the final plays of George Allen. Uh, It was supposed to be sort of like a takeoff. On the final days of Woodward and Bernstein and Nixon, uh, George Allen's chauffeur, a former policeman uh, named uh, Jenkins, told me that he had driven George Allen uh, that Friday after practice to take a red eye out to see uh, out to Los Angeles, where he was going to meet with Carol Rosenblum, who then owned the Rams, former or uh, a Colts owner, uh, and George went out there basically for a job interview. Uh, George was very upset with the Redskins. He thought that uh, his original contract with the team called for him uh, to get a new contract that would include a piece of the ownership of the team, a small percentage of it, which Edward Edward Bennett-Williams said was not the case. Blah, 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 blah. In any case, George Allen left uh, and and, uh, was was going out of town, whether he was fired or not. He would have quit. Allen uh, was, uh, yes, Edward Bennett-Williams. Uh, did indeed quote fire him but only after it became apparent he was going to the rams
2: wow um but he never
3: And you could look it up the, the story was in the magazine the Washington Post magazine I did it the following year I talked to Jack Kent Cooke about it I talked to Rosenbloom about it they all confirmed it uh and that's what happened he he uh he he was uh he was preparing to go to Los Angeles and go back to the rams
2: you know, so there are two things about that. Number one, he never did coach the Rams. He got fired during the preseason. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Wasn't it yeah, that? He
3: did. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, he got into a little dispute with with Rosenblum's son, uh, and that's a bad idea for any uh, coach to get a to to have some kind of a feud with the owners' uh, offspring uh, and a future possible owner. So that didn't work out, and the players sort of rebelled against these two a day practices that were brutal. George, the Rams players. Well,
2: did it, he yeah. get? Did he get paid?
3: He got. Well, I don't. That's a good question. Uh, he got fired during the preseason. Right. Uh, I'm assuming he had something in his contract. He must have gotten paid off. Yeah. You know, I, I that I that I that I can't answer.
2: You know, um, as you were talking about, you know, Allen, you know, Lee, going out there, and and obviously he had a desire to return back to L.A. Over the years that Bruce Allen was here, you know, under Snyder, I always got the sense, listening to Bruce talk, that the family loved living in Los Angeles and that the Rams for the family were really the team that they grew up with. I mean, look, Bruce had fond memories of the Redskins days, and so does the daughter, and so did George, you know, uh, Allen Jr. Um, yeah. Yeah. But but did you get that sense too that really L.A. they considered was home?
3: Oh, sure. I mean, that, that's where George, you know, he went back to Palos Verdes, right? Uh, where they had a be- where they had a beautiful home. That's where he died, basically. Yeah. Uh, on a New Year's Eve, by the way, and then uh, one year uh after going for a jog when he had pneumonia, but that's another story um death by Gatorade because he had been drenched by his long beach state uh, football right team long beach state pneumonia. Yeah,
2: right yeah
3: Anyway, <clears throat> yeah they they like California, George loved oh you know george yeah and George you know he went to college out there he went to Whittier college right uh so yeah they were they were uh, they were angelinos i guess and and uh, the the kids liked it very much too he lived in a great place. Uh, what's not to like about Los Angeles?
2: Do you ever think? Um, I, I, I've talked about this a lot. Just you know the um, the fine line between the incredible Super Bowl run and the Gibbs era, um, and what would have happened had Dallas not come back from thirteen down in the finale of nineteen seventy nine. Because if, if Washington holds on and wins that game, if the Redskins win that game, they're the one seed, basically. They've got home field advantage in the 79 playoffs. They might go to the Super Bowl, and Pardee might be here for a while. I know that Pardee wasn't necessarily beloved by the players, but if, if they hold on to were you? I'm assuming you were at that game in Dallas covering that game for, for the Post. Uh, I
3: actually was not. By that time, I was an editor.
2: Oh, you were an editor at that time. Uh,
3: I, yeah, I, I I stopped covering Jack Pardee's first year was my last year on the beat. Got it. Full time, um, and uh, so I no, I, I had uh, decided I wanted I was wanted to try and become a sports editor, uh, and and uh, so I went inside for about ten years, and then came back and, and did a lot of coverage.
2: But still, um, Pardee, yeah, they, they, they very well could,
3: they very well could have. But you know, I don't. Th- Jack still had a lot of friends on the team. Uh, yeah, there were some people who were not happy with him, and Kenny Houston was very unhappy with him because of the way his career ended. Jack didn't play him in his last game, uh, which was not a good thing, and Jack admitted later he made a huge mistake. But uh, I think more of it was Jack Kent Cooke was not totally enamored uh, with with Jack Pardee, and I, and I know for a fact that that Bobby Beathard was definitely not enamored with Jack Pardee.
2: What did you think and what did, um, you know, those that covered the team think when Bobby Beathard hired Joe Gibbs?
3: Um, I, I, you know, nobody really knew much about Joe uh, other than, you know, I mean, he had a great reputation as an offensive coordinator and and, and, and ran Eric Coryell. you know, his great offense uh, with the Chargers. But he was not well known. And then when he started out 0 and 5, you know, I, I suspect most of the media thought, uh oh, you know, what have they gotten themselves into? Just as Gibbs and Beathard both thought uh, when Cook summoned them out uh, to his to his uh, Middleburg estate when they were <laughs> 0 and 5, they both thought they were getting fired that night. Uh, turned out Cook said, "What can we do to help you guys? And and what should we do?" And and uh, they turned it around, went 8 and 8, and the rest, as they say, is history but i you know there I, I i don't remember i don't think people were complaining much about uh about gibbs or bether for that I matter. Mean, bether had a great record you know he he had helped fuel the dolphins uh to that super bowl uh, in 1972 yeah. he was the personnel guy uh so uh i i think they you know there was a wait and see with joe and uh they didn't have to wait real long that first season uh, and then the rest the rest uh,
2: fell into place. I mean, I, I was about to say, well, Dan would have fired him. But the truth is, he didn't fire Marty at 0-5. He waited until the end of the season, uh, at least. Yeah. And, by, and ignored the fact that they won eight of their final 11 games. Um, yes. S- so, let's talk about Dan Snyder. I... I you, you know, you're in a couple of the bylines from the early days and with Maskey and, and others. What do you yeah. remember about sort of the transfer of the team to, to Snyder, which was preceded by the Milstein situation? But just give everybody right. kind of right. a sense of, of, of those days. And, and actually, Len, I'd like to start with why do you think Jack Kent Cook didn't make it easier for John to hold on to the team?
3: Um, I think Jack Ken Cook uh, and people have told me this and, and Cook's lawyer who's no longer with us uh, once told me that that uh, he, he was not sure that John number one was totally dedicated to wanting to do it uh, or could do it and uh, which you know is part of it but I think the bigger reason was that that uh, Jack Ken Cook wanted to be remembered uh, forever uh, and so he decided to set up his own foundation and the 700 million dollars that probably should have gone to John to allow him to keep the team uh, instead the sale price 700 million dollars went to set up the Jack Kent Cook Foundation which is a very noble uh, noble philosophy of providing scholarships to very poor, and minority, uh, lower-class, poverty-stricken students uh, who otherwise couldn't have afforded to go to college or or graduate school. There's a beautiful building in Lansdowne out in Leesburg in his name, and I think Jack uh, maybe even thought that might have been his only ticket to heaven if he did something like that. (laughs) Uh, and, 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 uh, and And I really do sort of believe that. But in any case, uh, there, that, that's part of the reason. Uh, I'm just not sure he was convinced that John uh, wanted to do it or, or would be able to do it. By the John way, John came very close.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he came very close to 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 generating the, the funds to to purchase the team. Anyway, but right. not but not close enough.
3: That's exactly right.
2: Yeah. Uh, by the way, you said you thought that may have been what he thought would know, would create the ticket to heaven. Was he really a? How difficult of a person was he? Ultimately, like you know, we we all yearn for the days of Jack Ken Cook because he hired Bobby Bethard and let him do his job, and they won Super Bowls. And we've had this twenty-four year you know nightmare with with Dan Snyder. But he was far from a perfect person, right?
3: He was not a nice man. Okay, he was a great owner. Okay, he was a great owner. He let his people do their work and do their jobs and paid them well and gave them whatever they needed. And that's what you want a professional franchise owner to be. But uh, he was not very nice about the way he treated some people, uh, including some of his employees. Uh, He was not nice the way he treated uh, some of the women in, in his life. Uh, including the Bolivian firecracker, uh, Marlena, yep. uh, including the mother of his uh, now thirty-something-year-old do- daughter, uh, and he could be very—he uh, could be very difficult with writers. Uh, I, and I can tell you, my my very first experience with him, uh, I was actually reporting, doing reporting for that magazine piece I told you about <clears throat> on the final days of George Allen, and got Jack Cook on the phone. Surprisingly, got him on the phone the first time I called him. I thought I'd have to go through a bank of 40 secretaries to get to him. Picked up the phone, talked to me, was, uh, answered my questions for about 15 minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Cook. I really appreciate your time now, young man. I'd like you to read back everything I just said to you <laughs> verbatim. I said, well, Mr. Cook, we don't do that. He says, young man, I want you to do it. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're going to have a problem. I said, well, we don't do that at the post, uh, Mr. Cook. You're just going to have to trust me, young man. If there is an I undotted, if there is a T uncrossed, I'll have your job. <laughs> well, you know, I managed to stay another 30 years, so he didn't get my job. And I guess I get, I get, I guess I quoted him properly. But uh, that's the kind of guy he was. He he liked to intimidate people. He liked to make sure you knew. Uh, that he owned the Chrysler Building and then a lot of other things, uh, and he was not one of my favorite people, quite frankly.
2: All right, uh, let's get to the spring and summer of 1999, 24 years ago. You were covering uh, the purchase of the team by Dan Snyder. We'll get to that and all of your memories of those days right after these words from a few of our
0: sponsors.
1: Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May fifth at 5 p.m. Pacific time for the roast of Tom Brady, live only
0: on Netflix. You ready?
4: Showtime.
1: On May third, summer starts with the Fall Guy.
4: We do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes.
2: All right, so let's get to the team is being sold. It's the spring and summer of 1999. You know, walk everybody through how Snyder ultimately ends up with the, with the team, and then I want to get into some of your early impressions of him.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, Snyder uh, obviously was a minority partner with Howard Milstein, a New York banker who had a lot of money, owned the Islanders, but couldn't get three-quarter majority of the owners. Because he had a reputation as being rather litigious, he liked to sue people. Little did they know that, so did Dan Snyder. But <laughs> at that point, Snyder was a young, late 30s, uh, up and coming, had a lot of money, had sold his company, or was about to sell his company. Uh, and so the league, Paul Tagliabue, went to Snyder and said, "If you can get together a group, you know, uh, we'll we'll sell you the, the owners will approve the sale to you." Okay, fine. He did that. Uh, I remember covering the league meeting when he got the team, uh, he was fine. He was sort of affable. He was, he was available to us. Uh, you know, we came out and talked a little bit, but, uh, shortly thereafter, you know, he, this thing got to him and, uh, he didn't do so well. Uh, he, uh, he, he, literally disappeared from view. Uh, one of the first things I remember was going out to Redskin park. And again, remember, uh, I was, uh, at that point, uh, uh, not really uh, – I, I was still uh, – uh, well, I, I was reporting again, but I wasn't covering the team full-time. Right. I, I was covering the league more than I was covering the Redskins. I was the NFL beat writer. But I covered that meeting. Uh, after the meeting, uh, and went out to Redskin Park that fall, and uh, they had a PR guy named Carl Swanson yep. uh, who came into the press room one day and said uh, – Uh, a gentleman, and it was more gentlemen than ladies. Maybe he said ladies and gentlemen, I don't remember. But I do remember him saying, uh, Mr. Snyder would prefer that you not call him Dan. Uh, He'd like to be known as Mr. Snyder. At which point I sort of laughed to myself, yeah, right, okay. Um, I don't think I ever called him Mr. Snyder as long as I ever dealt with him. Uh, It was always Dan, how are you, Dan? Nice to see you, Dan. Nice win, Dan. Too bad about the loss, Dan. Uh, Made it a point, and a lot of my colleagues sort of felt the same way. Uh, he was a jerk from the, almost from the get-go. Uh, he had no patience for a lot of things. He treated people terribly. I'm not a little bit surprised about the, uh, the sexual harassment stuff and all the other stuff that's gone on uh, that essentially has forced him to sell the team, thank goodness. Uh, he was, he was uh, I tell people he made Jack and Cook sort of look like Shirley Temple uh, in comparison. <laughs> Uh, he was not nice to his employees. A lot of people got canned, uh, firing Marty Schottenheimer was a terrible mistake. Yep. Uh, I thought particularly after Marty got, you know, one eight of the last 11 after going on and five, uh, he made some terrible decisions. He brought in Jeff George. What a disaster that was. He kept signing big names. It was like he was collecting baseball and football cards to have on his roster, except they were all at the end of their careers. They all got huge signing bonuses and big salaries, and none of them wanted to play very much, uh, including Deion Sanders, including Bruce Smith. I mean, you can go on and on with the names. But uh, he was a, Dan Snyder, in my mind, didn't know what he didn't know. He thought he knew it all. Uh, he was a very cocky little guy, made a lot of money, good for him, uh, but he didn't know anything about football other than being a fan, and that doesn't work in the NFL.
2: Um, when you and Andy decide to update that great classic uh, New York Times best-selling DC Sports List book, which was <laughs> which was great, um, you know there could be a whole there could be several pages of, of Dan Snyder lists. But I'll I'll ask you uh, at least one because I, I did this on radio this morning with callers. Um, when was or what was the first moment? Where you kind of knew deep down this guy was going to be a major problem as an owner for this fan base?
3: Um, almost from the get go. You know, well, that, you know, the Dan stuff, you know, call me Dan, don't call me oh, Dan. God. But I'll, I'll tell you the, 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 big, the, the one that, that really wrangled me more than anything um, I was on the Hall of Fame selection committee for 30 years. And uh, we took that job pretty damn seriously. Uh, you know, you meet the Saturday before the Super Bowl, you make your decisions. Art Monk was up for uh, had been a finalist five or six times and never made it. I was the guy, uh, and then occasionally uh, Dave uh, David Elfen uh, had to give the speech to present him to my fellow uh, selectors, most of whom, in fact, ninety nine percent of whom were uh, media people. Uh, and one one of maybe the fifth or sixth year that, that uh, Art didn't get in. Dan Snyder put out a letter, basically a press release, saying these these, these selectors have no idea what they're doing. They're more, they're idiots. Blah, blah blah blah. Just denigrated the whole process, uh, lambasted the, the the guys who make up the committee, uh, and and uh, and I called them up, and I said, you know, why would you do something like that? Do you, you think that's going to help get Art Monk enough votes next year to get into the Hall of Fame, Dan? You really think that's going to what you just did is going to help you. You can feel that way if that's how you feel. Great. Do you have to put out a press release and, 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 and piss off, you know, 32 different people from 32 different franchises? Well, you know, I, that's how I feel. I, well, why would you do something like that? He says, you know why? Because I own the team and I can do whatever I want to do. Boom. Down went the phone. And that was probably one of the last conversations I ever had with him. The good news is that Monk obviously got in a couple of years later, as we all knew he would. Very few people get in on the first ballot, as you know, uh, and Art probably should have gone in earlier. but And that was Snyder in a nutshell to me. He just thought he could sort of bogart his way into every situation, make his feelings known, and things would change. They never changed for him, uh, and it just got worse every year.
2: What do you think his biggest flaw was? I mean, there's so many of them to choose from. But what do you think ultimately was um, the the cause for you know essentially chasing away one of the most rabid fan bases in sports over a quarter of a century? Well,
3: I, I, I honestly I don't know. I think it's it's called hubris. I own the team. I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, you know, he thought he made you know he, the best thing he did was to bring Joe Gibbs back, uh, and, and and that and Joe came back because he needed the money to, to, to keep up his, uh, his NASCAR team going, but, uh, and then got out with a big chunk of money, and, and that kept it going for a long time and still going. But uh, I think Dan thought, you know, he, he knew it all. He, he thought he was an owner. He, you know, he talked to Jerry Jones a lot, who I'm sure, you know, flim-flammed him more, more times than Dan probably even knew he was being flim-flammed uh, on things. Uh, he just had an ego. He, you know, his hubris, ego... Uh, narcissism, whatever you call it, uh, but Dan thought he knew it all, and he knew nothing. He knew, and he knew, uh, and he just didn't know enough uh, to make good decisions. And, and he brought in people uh, who had no business being here, uh, who shouldn't have been here. Uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, Steve Spurrier, uh, you know, what a disaster! I mean, come on. Uh, then the old Seattle uh, quarterback he brought in uh, Zorn, his name I'm totally blanking. Jim on. Zorn. Uh, yeah. Pardon me,
2: Jim Zorn. Yeah.
3: Uh, Zorn, thank you, Jim Zorn.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, disaster, uh, one disaster after another, and and uh, you know the the, the 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 great incident when uh, uh, he 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 put a bunch of uh, vanilla ice cream uh, outside the office of Mike Nolan, the offensive yeah. coordinator. Because he thought the uh, the Defensive, offense was yeah. too vanilla.
2: Defensive. Uh, no, that, that did a yeah, lot of yeah. good for
3: Nolan. You know, yeah, he didn't he didn't stay very long, and he was a terrific, pretty good coach. Anyway, he just he just rankled people. Got them and said, not a nice man.
2: It is. I mean, for somebody who lived as as a beat reporter and then as an editor and lived in this town for as long as you didn't saw how important this thing was to this city, how it was probably the biggest unifier in this city. Like I've always, I, I've said in recent years, the most impossible you know, thing happened, and it should be studied, and that is he literally eviscerated the most passionate fan base in the NFL at one point in 24 years. I mean if if, if I said yeah. to you in 1999, oh by the way, by 2023, nobody's going to care, the stadium's going to be empty, and the fans that are there are going to be rooting for the opponent, we both would have checked ourselves in or checked the, each the, the no, other one in.
3: No, there's no question. I mean, you know he had at one point, I don't know how, how many people were on the waiting list, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people at RFK. <clears throat> and, he, and he you know well, that's what happened you lose, you keep losing, you're going to lose. Um, uh, more dumb decisions. You know, the uh, uh, RG3, you know, playing the guy uh, and then letting him come back in the game. Now, Dan didn't – well, maybe he did make the decision. I don't know. But he just kept doing stupid things, and they did stupid things. Uh, and the, the fan base – I mean, they can only take so much. You know, when you're paying 10 bucks for a beer, you know, $8 for a hot dog, you know, the parking costs a fortune, the stadium is crumbling around you, You're getting no bang for your buck. Why would you keep coming back to watch what was essentially an inferior product produced by an owner who had no idea what he was doing? Uh, And and uh, you know I don't care how good your fan base is, uh, you got to treat the people right. And he didn't treat them right. He you know he kept their money uh, for deposits. He threatened people who uh, you know who were long time season ticket holders or had his people do it. It, it was a terrible front office. The whole thing stunk, and and thank you, Dan Snyder. A
2: <laughs> Couple more for Lynch. Oh, and then he had yeah. and he had
3: a problem. And he had a problem with women. You
2: know? Yeah. Um, so, do you know anything about Josh Harris?
3: Not a thing. Just what I read in the paper. What do you? Don't f- know him at all. I do know. I knew. I know Mitchell Rails uh, used to play basketball with him, uh, and his brother Stephen. Uh, When I was an editor back in the 80s at the YMCA on Rhode Island Avenue in in the district, about four blocks from my office, Uh, they own the Danaher Corporation, which is – they are uh, the Warren Buffetts of Washington, D.C., basically. Uh, They buy companies, make them uh, profitable, keep them, sell them, make a lot of money on them. Uh, So money is not going to be an issue. Uh, And uh, they're both – and I know Stephen is a big sports fan, and I know Mitchell is, too. So I, I think uh, good times may be ahead. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, they can move back into the district, and, and I suspect those moves are being made as we speak.
2: What kind of challenge do they have in rebuilding this fan base, and and how confident are you that it'll be rebuilt?
3: Well, I'm, I'm pretty confident if they start winning, people will come back and watch. And uh, uh, I, I just hope that they they're smart enough to. Make themselves, put themselves out front. Don't hide. Uh, you know, Snyder never did press conferences. He never, he never showed up. Draft day, nothing. Uh, never talked. You know, you could barely get him on the phone. Uh, in fact, you could never get him on the phone. I hope they're accessible. Uh, I hope they uh, they're transparent. Uh, I hope they uh, give Ron Rivera a decent shot. Although Rivera better not start and five, because I suspect, uh, you know, that's not that that won't that's not going to cut it with these guys they got to get off to a pretty good start uh, and i think that will help
2: you've been here forever how much of losing the name and in combination with sort of the clumsy you know rollout of this new brand and new name how much of that is a factor in getting everybody back on board
3: well Number one, they're not going to rename it the Redskins. Uh, the league won't let them do it, and they shouldn't do it. I, 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 I have no problem with changing that name, knowing what I knew, and doing some of the reporting I did. And by the way, Jack Kent Cook was considering it, too, before he died because there was a huge, uh, a huge uh, uh, protest uh, in 92 at the Minnesota Super Bowl. Uh, the last one uh, held in Minnesota with a lot of Native Americans. Uh, and Cook, I was told, uh, was was going to do it until the end when he got sick and he couldn't do it. So Redskins, I think that that that, that gone with the wind. Okay, it's derogatory. The first three letters in the dictionary: D E R. Period. Good riddance. Commanders needs to go, and they got to do something else.
2: So you think, you think Commanders needs to go?
3: Oh sure. The, 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 I call them the Commies. I mean, come on. So, Len, back to other the other people call them the manders. Back I mean, to the.
2: Be... <laughs> I've never heard uh, anything about Cook wanting to change the name. So you're saying that that Minneapolis Super Bowl in January of '92, and I was at that not, Super Bowl. Not
3: then. Oh, no, that affected him. Okay. And then there was a, and then the movement started to grow to change the name. Right. Uh, and so you know, three or four years later, Jack and Cook was seriously contemplating changing the name of the team. Because, number one, he saw tremendous, you know, look, look, at, look at the merchandise they could sell. Uh, and, and yeah, he was considering it, despite what he said.
2: All right. Um, great stuff. I, I should ask you, who do you like in the British this week?
3: Um, give me Rory McIlroy, my, my my favorite player out
2: there. <laughs> he he, was and he gr- just won. He I just won. He, he just won by birdieing yeah. 17 and 18. That was uh, fun to watch. Um, yeah. It's really good to hear your voice. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah,
3: and and Kevin, call
2: me anytime. Len Shapiro, everybody. I enjoyed that. Wow, some good stories. Uh, especially Jack Ken Cook. I had never heard that that Jack Ken Cook was seriously considering changing the name uh, in those you know, final few years of his life. Uh, interesting stuff from Len. Appreciate that. Back tomorrow with Tommy. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them.
1: Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply.